Hello everyone, welcome to Repeater Radio, an association with Repeater Books. My name is Dan Evans. For this series, I'm going to be exploring social class in the UK, with a particular focus on the petty bourgeoisie, that insecure, intermediate class sandwiched between the proletariat, or the working class, and the bourgeoisie, or those who own the means of production. Now, in classical Marxist theory, the traditional petty bourgeoisie, comprised of small farmers, artisans and shopkeepers, were not only generally viewed very negatively, they were also assumed to be doomed. In Capital, Marx assumes that technological advancement within capitalism will render these small producers null and void, and that they will be inexorably sucked into the ranks of the proletariat that they define themselves against. However, what I want to argue in this series of podcasts, and in a forthcoming book with Repeater that I'll be shamelessly promoting during this series, is that the petty bourgeoisie as a class, and indeed the political and ideological attitudes that define it, have in fact massively expanded in the UK as a result of structural changes to the British economy. I believe this class is now one of the most fundamental classes in the UK. Its rise can help explain the permanent 40% Tory vote in the UK, as well as the collapse of Labourism. In other words, we need to talk about the petty bourgeoisie. So imagine that as a tweet with the hand clap emojis in between it to emphasise the gravity of this. While I'll naturally be claiming credit for this, this isn't a particularly new argument. And as much was said by the brilliant Greek Marxist Nikos Palantzas in 1974, and his work will be returned to throughout this series, although hopefully I'll make it a little bit more accessible than he did. Despite the petty bourgeoisie being a constant feature and figure of fun within British pop culture, it remains a class that is almost completely ignored by the British commentariat as well as by the British left. Understanding this class will therefore be extremely important for the left as we rebuild in the coming years following the collapse of Corbynism. In order to do this, though, we'll first need to completely overhaul our understanding of class per se. For a country which is indeed obsessed with class, the British left do not have a particularly sophisticated understanding of class. Everything is generally collapsed into the unhelpful categories of the working class or the middle class, the poor or the rich, by all sides of British politics. Or else, as I'll shortly discuss, class is reduced purely to a set of aesthetics or consumption practices. The first few episodes of this series will therefore be about social class in general, with a particular emphasis placed on a Marxist analysis of class. So what classes are, how are they formed, how do people understand themselves as part of the class, and more. I will also, I hope, be getting guests on, because at the moment I feel like that bit in Wayne's World where Garth has to present the show on his own. I'm having a good time. Not. Did you see that scene in Scanners when the dudes have blew up? This first episode, however, is going to be a general introduction to the petty bourgeoisie as a class. If you'll allow me a bit of a self-indulgent backstory, I'll tell you how my interest in this class began. So my interest in the petty bourgeoisie stems from my PhD research into a small coastal town in South Wales called Porthcawl, where I also grew up and I know intimately. Anyone who knows me will say that this town is basically all I talk about. I love everyone there, I love the people, I love the characters. The focus of this research was on Welsh national identity and class. So within South Wales, Porthcawl is known as a posh, rich, middle-class town, an oasis within a solidly working-class region. I grew up thinking Porthcawl, and by extension myself, was very posh. This was just how it was, a locally taken-for-granted set of assumptions about the place and its inhabitants. Over the course of my research, though, the category of middle-class didn't actually seem to really explain any of the locals in the town. By this stage in my life, I'd been lucky enough to go away to university and I'd met who I would call actually middle-class people, so properly posh people, the real bourgeois, the people who are going to be army officers, bankers, managers, politicians. 
The people I met in Porth Corps were certainly not like this. They were not posh, no matter how hard they tried. Middle-class people, as a rule, did not tend to work in construction. They didn't pay for meals using cash, they didn't have tattoos, and didn't try as hard as people in Porth Corps did to show everyone that they were rich. Nor were the people in Porth Corps really working class. They obviously had too much wealth for this. They often owned their own businesses, and most of them owned their own houses. Some even had multiple houses that they rented out. It was clear then that the working class, middle class binary was insufficient to explain Porthcourt. Luckily, during my PhD research, I stumbled across the work of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who helped me to understand that the people I was studying in Porthcourt were neither working class or middle class, but part of this distinct class, the petty bourgeois. Naturally, the French understand the petty bourgeois very well, and as a term is far more prominent within French sociology than it is in the UK. For Bourdieu, Aesthetics is central to how class is understood in everyday life. Certain classes, and by extension places, are defined by particular forms of consumption, leisure and so on. We all intimately know how different classes dress, how they speak, what they wear, what they eat, the type of houses they live in, the TV shows they watch, and so on. So at this stage, I basically understood the petty bourgeois largely in these terms. They have neat houses, they dress in a particular way, they pretend to be richer than they were. This neatly explains basically all my friends and everyone I knew in Porthcourt. So while Bourdieu helps understand how class is understood in everyday life, it is nonetheless very important not to just reduce class to aesthetics and consumption practices, which, as I said, has become the norm within the British media. Media coverage of both the 2017 and 2019 elections, in which Labour lost the mythical red wall of solid Labour seats to the Tories, was defined by a warped understanding of class, in particular by what Joe Kennedy brands authentocracy. This involved patently privileged bourgeois professional politicians essentially pretending, in the most cringeworthy way possible, to be working class, to prove their authenticity to the electorate. Whilst this used to be done by referencing their working class family roots, for example, saying how their father or grandfather used to work down the pit, today politicians prove their working class authenticity purely in terms of consumption habits, with coffee in particular being regularly derided as a preserve of a metropolitan liberal elite. So we had big pharma lobbyist and BBC journalist Owen Smith claiming he didn't know what a cappuccino was in an Italian cafe in the Welsh Valleys. Incidentally, an area of the world in which Italian migration, Italian coffee and Italian ice cream has played a huge role in working class culture. At the core of authentocracy, however, is not just cosplaying at being working class. Instead, it was and is a carefully calculated attempt by right-wing politicians to use the idea of a mythical reactionary working class to launder reactionary ideas and ultimately to delegitimise Corbyn's Labour Party, which was dismissed as middle-class, metropolitan, and out of touch with the real working class, who apparently didn't want things like universal childcare, they wanted things like war and nuclear weapons instead. But central to the media's authenticrat coverage of the election and the loss of the Red Wall was to assume that this entire area, so the whole of South Wales, the whole of Northern England, was uniformly working class and Labour voting. So one of the most hilariously bleak examples of this was coverage by Helen Pidd of The Guardian, who famously interviewed a working-class artisan pizza restaurant owner in Lee, one of the former Labour seats which voted Tory in 2019. When the ludicrous of this position was pointed out to Pidd on Twitter, she doubled down, claiming, you actually can be working-class and run a restaurant, or indeed be a property developer. It was clear that Pidd, just like every other journalist, no doubt by virtue of their own sheltered lives, had never actually met anyone who was working-class, and she thought that anyone with a northern accent was by default, working class. Class here was determined purely by accident and geography, rather than their economic relationship to capital, their social position and function in the class structure, their political ideology, and so on. 
something has gone deeply wrong, someone noted on Twitter, when you can see nothing wrong about talking about a working class landlord renting to a middle class tenant. Of course, the small business owner is a classic example of the petty bourgeoisie. What's happened, therefore, en masse in the UK is to lump large fractions of the petty bourgeoisie, many of whom are naturally affiliated with conservatives, in with the working class, and then, of course, accuse Corbyn of losing people who are extremely unlikely to ever vote Labour anyway. To be fair, though, it wasn't just the media. If I'm being brutally honest about things, like the media, I had largely understood class, and the people in Porthcawl in particular, in terms of aesthetics. I hadn't thought about the change in social and economic conditions that produced class, and how class in turn produced political ideology. Whilst the lifestyle aesthetics of the petty bourgeoisie of Porthcawl were certainly interesting, perhaps more importantly was the fact that Porthcawl votes Tory, while the rest of Bridgend Borough historically votes Labour, making the town a pariah within the local social structure. In Porthcawl, I had always been struck by the presence of a rugged individualism which fetishised hard work and was accompanied by a visceral hatred of anyone that was deemed to be lazy, not just people on benefits, but students, teachers, or anyone who went on strike. This was something I always found extremely upsetting growing up, and for years I'd had many pointless arguments with my friends and peers, telling them that you know no matter how much money they earned, they were working class because they worked, and so on and so forth. During the 2017 and 2019 elections, my interactions with many of my old school friends were quite upsetting and jarring. Here I was, a classic middle-class person, urging people to vote for Corbyn. Many of my friends who I knew had grown up in very modest and, to my mind, solidly working-class households, derided Corbyn for stopping people who wanted to get on in life. I was, I thought, seeing people vote against their material interest, identifying with the status quo and capital. It made very little sense to me. In retrospect, I, like many socialists, was still looking at society as if it was the 30s or 40s, thinking about class not just in a black and white working class, middle class way, but in a romanticised way, thinking that the working class still worked in unionised heavy industry and lived in terraced houses, and that above this working class stood the bourgeoisie. People's class was determined in my mind by their accent where they came from, rather than by a cold objective analysis of their role in the social structure and the relationship to capital. Despite calling myself a Marxist, these elections made me realise I hadn't really been thinking or analysing society like a Marxist for some time. I hadn't seriously thought about how changes to the economy had impacted on what class meant today. Luckily, the elections forced me to think a little bit more clearly. One of the lightning bolt moments happened when I campaigned for Labour in my home constituency of Bridgend. Here, we canvassed on huge, formerly safe Labour areas, the sprawling council estates of Kevin Glass and Brackler. Two incidents that really stood out to me. The first was a woman who we encountered while campaigning. She was delivering parcels and helpfully kept telling us which people were in and which people were out. After bumping into her for about the third time, the election agent had a chat with her and asked how she'd be voting. She said she had two, maybe it was even three, zero-hour jobs delivering packages, so she was self-employed. She said she could work whenever she wanted. She said she liked Boris, she hated Corbyn. She didn't like that Corbyn wanted to stop zero-hour contracts. She viewed herself as an entrepreneur. This shook me. I reflected about what this said about the modern world of work. Previously in Bridgend and across South Wales, people worked in workplaces which were conducive to the inculcation of communitarian socialist thought. Not just coal mining and steelwork, but docking and manufacturing. These old forms of work are communal. They produce solidarity and a first-hand knowledge or class instinct about the reality of exploitation. These jobs are also unionised. The interaction with this lady helped clarify something that I should have seen ages ago. I myself have done numerous zero-hour contract jobs. The new forms of work that many people in the area were forced into 
have produced atomized, isolated individuals working on their own with very little contact with other workers, with no chance to form solidarity with other workers. These jobs come with their own set of ideological baggage. They encourage workers to think of themselves as self-employed, as entrepreneurs, meaning that they ended up, in many cases, identifying with capital. That was the first incident. Next, I looked at the built surroundings in these estates. Now, historically, these estates were uniform council housing owned by the local authority, places I used to find a bit scary as a middle-class person. They used to be homogenous working-class areas. Now, however, the estates had visibly changed. Whilst there remained pockets of obvious deprivation and council-owned properties, the estates were now a mosaic of social housing and people who had bought their council house. On top of this, the edges of the estates were gradually being encircled and encroached upon by new builds built by the likes of Red Room Persimmon for younger families who couldn't afford to live in Cardiff and they were turning Bridgend into a commuter town. Many houses had extremely expensive cars in the driveway. Naturally, many of these people, although they sounded working class, certainly more so than many of the young middle-class activists who were canvassing, were voting Conservative. They owned their own home. They were proud of it. Just like everyone I knew in Porthcawl, they were extremely house-proud. Their lawns and houses and cars were immaculate. This, as we shall see in a future episode, is one of the distinguishing aesthetic characteristics of the petty bourgeoisie. The prevalence of these small property owners and these atomized, isolated workers was profound, and it immediately made me reassess everything. I realised that I couldn't hang on to my old romanticised understanding of class any longer. The materialist Marxist view of society holds that changes the economic base of society, changes the social, political and ideological relations. Changes in technology which change the economy ultimately change how we work, they change how we interact with one another, it changes how we live, how we think, it changes our beliefs. Remember, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie were new classes, birthed by the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, they didn't exist. But the creation of a new mode of capitalist production brought the rural peasantry into the towns and cities where they worked in the new industries, in the factories, in the mills, in the ironworks and the mines, and where they became the proletariat. Just as the changes wrought by the Industrial Revolution created new classes and an entire new society, the huge changes to capitalism set in the train in the 70s, which, let's not forget, is well over half a century ago, have equally created a new society and a completely new class structure, whether we like it or not. This new society has created conditions which are conducive to hegemonic conservatism, and which are not, unless we struggle, conducive to the sort of communitarianism that is a prerequisite for socialism. I often feel the depth of the changes that have occurred haven't really been grasped and they've been obscured by the aforementioned nostalgic view of class in the UK. At this stage, you're probably thinking, just explain what the petty bourgeoisie is and shut up. Okay, here goes. The traditional petty bourgeoisie, or small bourgeoisie, if you're a French speaker like me, <laughs> is a distinct class, although it does not exhibit the same unity that the proletariat or bourgeois does. It contains far more class fractions than these classes, and a far greater degree of internal difference. We'll come back to that later. Now, traditionally the class is comprised of smaller farmers, small shopkeepers and artisans. So, carpenter, I don't know, like a cobbler, baker, <laughs> you know what an artisan is. The distinctiveness of the petty bourgeoisie is often explained by the unique place it occupies within the capitalist mode of production. The petty bourgeoisie is like the bourgeoisie in that he owns his own means of production, and he owns his small property. This marks him as distinct from the proletariat. However, he is like the proletariat in that he is a direct producer, and he also has to work, otherwise he'll starve, just like the proletariat. He is also dominated by, and in theory in conflict with, big monopoly capital, and will likely be ruined by it. So it is a class, in other words, that contains elements of both major classes, 
but nonetheless sits outside both of them. Marx, Lenin, Gramsci, and then Polanzas identify a particular ideology which helps define this class. So the class is not just defined by its economic relation to capital, it's defined by its distinct ideology. Now, I'm going to go through these in turn. One, the petty bourgeois is often anti-capitalist in a vague sense, but nonetheless supportive of the status quo and hostile to the idea of radical social change or revolution because of a fear of losing their small property and being sucked back down into the ranks of the proletariat. Poulantzas argues that of all the classes that support the status quo, the petty bourgeois is distinct in that it is the only class that does not gain anything materially from its support for the status quo. It gains no concessions. Instead, it supports the status quo not because of what it stands to gain, but because of what it stands to lose. Very often, the only thing differentiating the petty bourgeoisie from the proletariat is his property, which he holds on too dearly and is frightened of losing. Because the way of life of the petty bourgeoisie is precarious and isolated, it is felt the petty bourgeois is an individualist. By the nature of their work, either in the shop or on the farm or in the workshop, they do not necessarily work side by side with fellow workers or experience the obvious exploitation that creates the innate class instinct in the proletariat. These theoretical thoughts were explored in great detail by Frank Beckhofer in 1981 when they conducted empirical work on small farmers and shopkeepers. These ethnographic studies painted a picture of a deeply insecure and precarious class. The small farmers that they interviewed often hated the rich, but they also hated the organised working class, which they saw as rebellious as well as lazy. Just as Marx, Lenin and Engels predicted, the precarity, the long hours and the social isolation experienced by the small farmers and small business owners produced a rugged individualism. Second, an ideology of social promotion and aspiration. The petty bourgeoisie as a class is obsessed with social mobility. It wants to get ahead in life, and it is also the most socially mobile class. As a rule, the working class stays where it is. There is very little movement out of the working class. Equally, the bourgeois tends to stay where they are. The education system, for example, in the UK clearly perpetuates this state of affairs. The private school system is about maintaining the class divide and allowing the bourgeois to stay where they are. They all certainly not fall down the ranks of the class structure. And equally, the working class are kept where they are by the education system and prepared for a life of low-paid menial work. The petty bourgeois, by contrast, just as they are terrified of becoming working class, therefore aspire to become bourgeois, to move up the social ladder. So combined with the traditional lack of political representation that speaks to it as a whole class, this leads to an individualist outlook. Rather than favouring a radical transformation of society then, the petty bourgeois settle for social promotion within the system. As Poulansa sums it up, the petty bourgeoisie do not want to break a ladder that they imagine it can climb. Its thirst for social mobility make it uniquely susceptible to dominant bourgeois ideology. The third and final aspect of traditional petty bourgeois ideology is a power fetish, love for the state or tendency towards authoritarianism. Because they are outside the bourgeoisie and they are outside the working class, the petty bourgeois tend to consider themselves as a neutral class. Their lack of a natural political party leads them similarly to identify the state as neutral. For this reason, they often see themselves as a respectable backbone of their society. They are not the aristocrats. They are not the rebellious trade union movement. And because of their desire for social mobility and promotion, they're also attracted to roles within the state, such as the police and the army, that they believe offer promotion prospects. For this reason, as well as the fear of losing their property, many Marxist theorists have argued that the petty bourgeois is often the backbone of fascist movements. So this is the traditional petty bourgeoisie, 
this is what it is, and it is, is what its ideology is. Why is this relevant, Dan? Well, bear with me. Let's very briefly look at what's happened in the UK over the last half century. Now, according to Alvna Offer, for most people in Britain, from the 1860s until the 1960s, life was framed by a proletarian mode of production. As late as the 1960s, occupational measures suggest that the majority of households in Britain were still proletarian. In 1961, three out of four of those in employment in England and Wales were manual workers or low-paid clerical ones. Of these, 69% were male. So while services have been dominant in the UK throughout the 20th century, there were still huge amounts of traditional proletarian professions and huge regional enclaves in the UK whereby people lived a proletarian way of life within the service economy. Within different regions, areas were relatively homogeneously working class. The working class had its own towns, its own estates, and a distinct way of life. Despite a massive rise in wages and consumption noted in the Affluent Worker Study by Goldthorpe and Lockwood, we nonetheless arguably had a strong, large proletariat in the UK which was solidly labour voting, represented by the trade unions, and as a rule did not identify with capital. Although we could have a debate here about the labour aristocracy and the role of empire, but we won't. A strong trade union movement at this time meant real working class power, both in terms of collective bargaining and politically, with both parties forced to recognise the presence of a working class majority. During this period, of course, petty bourgeoisie was marginal to British life. However, that proletarian way of life is all gone, and indeed it was largely gone within a generation. We've seen a huge move away from heavy industry towards services, so banking, call centres, rentier capitalism. We've seen a decline in public sector work as mass privatisation occurred. More people work in the private sector with far less trade union representation. Traditional forms of work such as agriculture and extractive work like mining, construction and manufacturing have greatly declined. So mining and agriculture were on a slow, steady decline since the 20s, albeit they still remained very significant in particular regions, while manufacturing and construction boomed after World War II, but then started to decline in the 60s, a trend which was massively accelerated by Margaret Thatcher. So in 1955, for example, services accounted for 53% of the UK economy, while manufacturing and heavy industry accounted for 47%. So we can see then basically a more equal split. By 1990, however, services accounted for 72%, and in 2016 accounted for 84%, more than any other country in the G7, with manufacturing and heavy industry completely decimated in the UK. In other words, we've had a complete revolution in the economic base of our society. These changes have had massive impacts on the world of work. We've seen the rise of clerical and administrative work, a growth of mental rather than manual labour. By the 80s, more than half of the British workforce was employed in non-manual labour. By 2003, only a third worked in manual professions. We instead saw a rise in professional occupations, such as lawyer, doctor. We saw a rise in the technician or foreman type work. We saw a growth of management. We saw a huge growth in personal services and self-employment, which exploded from 1979 and reached a higher 15% in 2015. Now, David Graeber refers to the expansion of this unproductive labour as a mass creation of bullshit jobs, jobs which had little social value. There is certainly much to be said in this. Trade union density also sharply declined in the 80s. And although this decline started to slow in the 90s, there are now only 6.4 million trade unionists in the UK. While hopefully this number will rise during COVID, it's still less than half of what it was. So the changes to the economy, and therefore to the world of work, and the decline of organised labour should have revolutionised how we understood class and how we understood British society. However, the new approaches to understanding the changed class structure within this new form of capitalism 
tended to overlook the existence of the petty bourgeoisie and instead persisted with the idea of a middle-class, working-class dichotomy. These changes were often referred to as creating new class fractions. In particular, they were felt to have created a white-collar working class, people who don't earn much money but who were nonetheless doing jobs which looked and felt like they were either middle-class or non-working class. For example, working in an office, a call centre or doing supervisory work. Another dominant way of interpreting these changes has been to say that we're all middle class now. The working class has basically become middle class. Neither of these dominant approaches in my mind is really sufficient, and I believe the left has been crippled by using old forms of understanding and old narratives for a fundamentally new form of society. Directly contradicting the narratives about the creation of a new white-collar working class or the idea that we've created a new middle class, what Poulantzas argued was that these structural changes to society had instead created a new, hugely important class, which he called the new petty bourgeoisie. Although they did not do the same forms of work as the traditional petty bourgeoisie, he argued they can nonetheless be considered as the same class with the same ideology. He said the new forms of work were central to this. Office workers, for example, because of their mental work, defined themselves against the smaller working class that was engaged in manual labour. The new petty bourgeois worked in more isolated conditions in offices and they lacked the understanding of exploitation which is developed in the worker involved in, for example, heavy industry. Poulantzas argued that the work conditions of these new workers developed a sense of individualism. So what I'm not doing here is labelling everyone petty bourgeoisie with a big labelling machine as that would be as mistaken as labelling everyone who works as the white-collar working class or to claim that everyone is middle class. The working class remain the motor of society and class struggle, fear not. What I am doing is saying that we need to understand things clearly. We need to understand class clearly. Poulantas uses numerous examples to explain how class is not simply just an economic relationship, but a political, social and ideological one. He looks, for example, at the foreman in a factory. He says that the foreman, on some measures, be obviously considered as a part of the working class. He is involved in the production process, he is helping make a commodity, and he is also being exploited by capital. But what Poulantas said was that because of the social nature of his work in supervising the rest of the worker, the foreman would inevitably start to identify with capital and therefore, because of his social function, would not be classed as working class. This allows us a more nuanced understanding of how class works. So not everyone who works is working class. We have to consider their social function within the class structure. This allows us to consider things like the social role of the policeman, the soldier or the prison guard. Of course, Poulantzas was writing about France in the early 1970s, way before Margaret Thatcher came into power in the UK. Margaret Thatcher massively accelerated the tendencies towards creating a new petty bourgeoisie that Poulantzas had identified previously. It is also noteworthy and often overlooked that Thatcher was herself the personification of the petty bourgeoisie. She was the daughter of a grocer who was obsessed with social mobility and became the mayor of Grantham, that is, her dad, not Thatcher herself. In terms of economic policy, as we've just seen, Thatcher privatised everything. But in terms of my hypothesis about the expansion of the petty bourgeoisie, the most important policy that Thatcher introduced was the right to buy, where council tenants were offered the chance to buy their council houses at a discounted rate. Thatcherism, as Stuart Hall noted, was a cultural revolution which transformed not only the economic base of society, but which changed the common sense of society too. Thatcher himself stated that economics was the method. The goal was to change the soul of society. Right to buy personified this. While it seemed to be an economic policy, Thatcher's own advisers were fairly open about the political and ideological calculations behind it. They knew that people who rented their homes voted Labour and that people who owned their homes voted Conservative. 
Right to buy was designed to peel off a large swathe of the working class of the Conservatives, and it was very successful in this regard. Property ownership, as we have seen, is central to petty bourgeois ideology. It produces an individualistic mindset and a fear of social change as people become scared of losing their property. By expanding home ownership, Thatcher therefore expanded the petty bourgeoisie in the UK. The new Tory voter was personified by Essex Man, upwardly mobile, someone with working class roots in the east end of London, who sounded working class, but who was now employed in services and who had bought his own house under Thatcher. This was the very personification of the petty bourgeois, and they congregated in the suburbs and cities of the new towns across the UK. So at the time, the new petty bourgeoisie was widely identifiable and was lampooned in British popular culture. Harry Enfield's character loads of money emerged in the late 1980s, an Essex wide boy who drives around the countryside in a sports car throwing money at people. Oh, love, is this a countryside? Yes! What is all the bleeding cares and that then? Never mind. Here, here's a tenner. Go buy yourself an ass. <laughs> Enfield continued this in the 90s with his character considerably richer than you. An outrageous couple from Birmingham who loudly and publicly boast to anyone who will listen that they have more money than you. I became considerably richer than you through honest hard work. You get what you pay for and you earn what you're worth. Oh, that's one of Stanley's little sayings, that is. Do you know, my Stanley probably makes more money in a year than you do in ten. What do you think of that next spot? Gosh. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't every financial decision you make a struggle? <laughs> no, not for us, it isn't. Ah, yes. Money's done me proud. I mean, just look at me wife. Oh. <laughs> I mean, nothing dowdy about my pummy, is there? No offence, pet. And Joe Kennedy and Authenticrats notes the centrality of the petty bourgeoisie in the sitcom Keeping Up Appearances, which focuses on the hapless social climber Hyacinth Bucket. On top of the right to buy, Thatcher championed entrepreneurship and rugged individualism. She famously said there was no such thing as society. She created the folk devil of the welfare scrounger, which was necessary to drive a further wedge between the new petty bourgeoisie and the working class, which was demonised as being either lazy or as a red striking trade unionist. She also expanded the security apparatus of the state and championed a militant churchillist nationalism which many members of the new petty bourgeoisie identified with and also participated in. Thatcher ultimately created a society which was objectively more isolated. People no longer lived in homogeneously working class estates. They lived in estates where half the people had bought their own home. They worked in new industries where they were more isolated from one another. They were massively encouraged to consume and were assisted in this regard by lots of cheap credit. As Grace Blakely notes, People in the UK used cheap credit to buy more luxury consumer goods and they felt more prosperous, even if their wages and their class power had collapsed. All this collectively, as Stuart Hall noted, helped shift British society dramatically to the right. It created a new hegemonic way of looking at the world which was strongly individualist. This was petty bourgeois culture writ large. As Beckhofer noted, the petty bourgeois as a class was no longer marginal. Not only had the class itself expanded under Thatcher, the ideology and lifestyle associated with the petty bourgeois had massively spread. The changes set and trained by Thatcher have only accelerated, and they've entrenched and further expanded the new petty bourgeoisie. Home ownership is by far and away the dominant form of housing tenure within the UK. Since Thatcher, local authorities now barely build council housing, and housing as a whole has been left to the whims of the market. A scarcity of housing has meant that house prices have skyrocketed, which is great news for anyone who managed to buy the council house under Thatcher. 
Grace Blakely again argues that these changes created a class of mini-capitalists who now had a stake in this new system of debt-driven asset price inflation. We can also see this, for example, in the proliferation of small landlordism, something alluded to by Brett Christophers in his book, Rontier Capitalism. Ultimately, like the delivery driver I encountered in Bridgen, more and more people are working in isolation, in conditions which encourage individualism and competition between one another. It's encouraging to see belated attempts to unionise in these sectors, but we also need to acknowledge first how these forms of work and their isolation generally militate against class consciousness and class instinct and make people more vulnerable to internalising dominant narratives about entrepreneurialism and make them more likely to identify with capital. It's also important to talk about popular culture, as I believe the pop culture has not just reflected, but reinforced and reproduced petty bourgeois culture in the UK. If you look at TV now, property development shows are extremely popular, and indeed one of the most popular shows in the UK, The Only Way is Essex, is literally about the petty bourgeois demographic which formed the backbone of Thatcherism. On top of this, we've got Love Island, Made in Chelsea and all others, all of which encourage a lifestyle of individualist, conspicuous consumption. This isn't just about the Tories, though. As Poulances argues, petty bourgeois ideology cuts across the political divide. It is entirely possible, as Lenin noted, to have petty bourgeois socialism, whereby the individualism and conservatism of petty bourgeois ideology permeates socialist thought. Tony Blair himself stated that his swing to the right and the creation of new labour itself was catalyzed by his interaction with a member of the petty bourgeois, someone who came to be called Mondeo Man, the 90s version of Essex Man. In the 1996 Labour conference, Blair recalled a Ford Sierra owner he had witnessed in the Midlands whilst out campaigning in the 1992 general election. This is all off Wikipedia, by the way. The man was a self-employed electrician who Blair met while the man was polishing his car at the weekend. He told Blair he was an ex-Labour voter who had bought his council house, owned his own car, and wondered what the Labour Party had to offer him given the party's history of raising taxes and mortgage rates. Blair said, His dad voted Labour, he said. He used to vote Labour too, but he bought his own house now. He'd set up his own business. He was doing very nicely. So I'd become a Tory, he said. In that moment, he crystallised me the basis of our failure. His instincts were to get on in life, and he thought our instincts were to stop him. But that was never our history or purpose. We can go into great detail there about the problems of Blair. But the influence of the petty bourgeois is clear in the modern Labour Party. We've got an acceptance of the status quo. Instead of a radical transformation of society, the Labour Party want to level the playing field to allow social mobility within the system. We don't want to empower the working class as a whole. Instead, we want more working class kids to go to Oxbridge. Or we want to see more working class people in business. Labour has championed home ownership and has continued Thatcher's obsession with entrepreneurship. The trade union movement is focused on increasing wages and staving off proletarianisation rather than on industrial action. Closer to me, Welsh Labour's record in government is defined by petty bourgeois ideology, deliberately trying to increase the amount of first-time homeowners and focusing overwhelmingly on social mobility strategies rather than building the organised power of the working class. Cumulatively, these have actually ironically served to cement petty bourgeois ideology within the Labour movement and within the UK as a whole, and of course they've helped lay the groundwork for the death of the Labour Party. It's encouraged the individualistic attitudes and undermined the collectivism which birthed the Labour movement in the first place. If we look at the Great British Class Survey of 2017, the new affluent worker, roughly analogous to the old C2 social category and the closest thing we've got to the petty bourgeoisie, was the second largest social group, accounted for 15% of the population. This group are defined by relative economic security, relatively low cultural capital and relatively low educational capital. They're less likely to have gone to university or be geographically mobile. 
but they are upwardly socially mobile. They own their own homes. Um, of course, this is one of the reasons that they don't tend to be geographically mobile. They stay in their towns. As an aside, the petty bourgeois are the flip side of the majority of people recording and listening to this podcast. The emergent service workers, young people who went to university, who are likely to have what we think a sophisticated taste in music and film, but who have no money, property or stability, and who eat only wrestlers' burgers that they've taken from homeless shelter. We are not homeowners and we've got little prospect of being homeowners either. So where Blair and Thatcher were right was to identify the petty bourgeoisie as a growing and potentially powerful class. Both Thatcher and Blair seemingly identified the petty bourgeoisie as potential kingmakers in society. However, Labour in particular, to me at least, seems to imply that petty bourgeois swing voters are a homogeneously right-wing reactionary bloc which must be appealed to. This is why it's important that we understand who the petty bourgeoisie are, because they are not an innately right-wing force, precisely because they are not a homogenous group. Although the petty bourgeoisie has been associated with Pujadism, fascism and authoritarianism, this isn't the whole story by a long way. Once again, here I'll return to Poulantzas. Although the petty bourgeoisie is a distinct class, the petty bourgeoisie does not have the same unity as the primary classes, the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. It is not a homogenous class, but a class which contains significant class fractions, which may be further towards the proletariat or further towards the bourgeoisie, depending on circumstances. Politically, the petty bourgeoisie is an unstable force. In the long run, the petty bourgeoisie has no autonomous class position of its own. In society, the balance of forces will always lie between the working class and the bourgeoisie, so between proletarian revolution and capitalism. There is no such thing, for example, as a petty bourgeois society or a petty bourgeois mode of production. There is only a capitalist bourgeois society or socialist working class dominated society. The petty bourgeoisie, although it's expanded massively, will never be the dominant class in society. The established and technical middle class, for example, still comprises over 30% of British society. And the working class, if we take the traditional working class and the precariat together, is also 30%. The petty bourgeois there lies in the middle as a smaller class with the emergent service worker. Or maybe the emergent service worker is also a fraction of the new petty bourgeoisie. Maybe that is something we can explore in future episodes. Maybe that is something you, the listeners, can explore in your heart. What class are we in? As Pilates notes, the petty bourgeoisie contains cultural elements of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Because it's smaller and less internally coherent, it also has no natural political party, unlike the proletariat and unlike the bourgeoisie. Politically, therefore, it may either take the side of the bourgeoisie or the side of the working class, and in this way, it may truly be considered to be a kingmaker class. But the petty bourgeoisie can also be split, with different factions lining up between the working class or the bourgeoisie. Above all, it is possible to win this class, but in order to win this class, it is first important that we understand it. And that is what I'm going to do throughout the rest of this series. That, I hope, is a suitably profound note to finish episode one on. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you didn't get sick of my, my monotone voice. Please join me next time for episode two, where, fingers crossed, I will be joined by a guest. Goodbye. <laughs>